For most of us, waiting is never easy. In our culture, waiting for anything is not considered to be a virtue anymore. Waiting is something that children hate, and adults do too. (laughs) Everything in our culture and in our society and seem to be expanding throughout the world is instant. We do have instant food and instant drinks and instant diets and And even they have now manufacturing antique while you're waiting. (laughs) In fact, I read this week that the average person, the average person gets agitated within a period of 40 seconds waiting for an elevator. 40 seconds. And then became to show visible agitation. Here's the problem. That most people bring this agitation, they bring this impatience, they bring all of this into their faith and into their walk with the Lord. And their expectations for instant things grows by the same proportion as it grows in society at large. So we want instant worship, instant sermons, you wish. (laughs) And we want instant answers to prayers. And if we don't get instant answers to prayers, we think there's something wrong. What's gone wrong here? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with him? Why am I not getting answers to my prayer right now? The problem is because of our instant society, we tend to think of God as just another person, and we try to treat God just like if He's another friend or somebody down the road. We have lost that vision of God, of so being awesome God and being a transcendent God and being a magnificent God who is in control of the whole universe. What do I mean by we treat God just as another person? Well, the best way I can give it to you is in form of illustrations that you can relate to. When you get the silent treatment from your angry spouse, what happens? What normally happens? You get confused and you feel isolated right? In fact, it was George Bernard Shaw who said, silence is the most perfect expression of scorn. (laughs) I heard about the man the other day. He looked very sad, and his friend uh, was asking him, he said, why are you looking so sad? He said, well, he said, "Uh, my wife said that uh, she would give me the silent treatment for 30 days. And he said, why are you sad about that? He said, today is the last day. (laughs) Now, beloved friends, let me tell you, God is not like that. Let me repeat this. God is not like that. When God is silent, it's not because He's angry. As I understand the Scripture in all the decades I've been studying it, as I I comprehend the Word of God, I have learned from the Word of God that There are several times when God is silent in our lives. There is the silence of conviction, where God is waiting for you to come under conviction to stop doing what you are doing that you are not supposed to do. And until you come to that point of conviction, God is silent. He's waiting. Then there is the silence of mercy. It's the most misunderstood silence of God. 
It is out of mercy for you that God waits and lets you wait. Then there is the silence of testing. God is testing you to see whether you really trust Him for good or for a moment. Then there is the silence of love. Out of love for you, God does not give you what you ask for immediately because sometimes you don't know what you're asking for. And what you're asking for today, it may be a disaster tomorrow, but God knows that, and that's why He is silent. When God is silent, it's probably because He is putting you through His practical school. He's putting you through His training school. When God is silent, He's possibly because He's trying to teach you something or some truth about yourself that you need to know in your relationship with Him. When God is silent, it is possibly because He wants to see how you can really trust His Word, that you trust His promises, not just when the sun is shining, but even when it's pouring rain. When God is silent, it is possibly to get you quiet so that He can work on your behalf. When God is silent, it is possibly because He loves you so much that He wants you to rest on His love in confidence. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, God gave the apostles a period of waiting. But that was not a waste of time. There was a period for waiting. It was a period for preparation for them to be able to receive the Holy Spirit of God. God always, when He keeps you waiting, it's for a purpose. It's always for a purpose of preparing you for something greater in your life. What is this lesson? And the lesson is this. God is doing things in your life that you cannot see. That God is doing things in your life which you are totally unaware of. God is doing things in your life in order to develop your character, and that takes time, and possibly you cannot see it. What was God doing in a period of ten days? Ten days. might not seem long to us. But when you understand the circumstances they were in, in the upper room, you'll understand it felt like eternity. Ten days, ten-day period. What is God doing? What God was training the apostles to know how to pray together. He was training them how to fellowship together. He was training them on how to study the Bible together. He is training them on how to discern the will of God together. He was training them to practice simple obedience to His command together. So, my beloved friend, next time you are waiting upon the Lord, know that He is working His purpose out for you in your life. Next time you are waiting upon the Lord, know that He is working things out for your good and for your best. Next time you're waiting upon the Lord, know that beyond the shadow of doubt, that His silence is either to bring you under conviction that His silence is because of His mercy on you, that His silence is because He's testing you, that His silence is because He's teaching you patience and perseverance, all of because He loves you. You see, a friend of mine used to say, God, 
is not going to get a bunch of spoiled brats to rule and reign with Him in heaven. So He trains us to become mature, to become wise. He trains us to become discerning. He trains us to become patient. This 10-day period from the time that they saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ, ascended into heaven after He's been with them for 40 days, this period of 10 days was the time from when they saw Him going up to heaven to the time that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost. That was a 10-day period of time. And that waiting period was serving three purposes. Purpose number one, waiting for the Lord, was to strengthen the apostles. Secondly, waiting for the Lord was to separate the apostate, verses 16 to 20. Thirdly, waiting for the Lord was to solidify the anointed, verses 21 to 26. I hope you're impressed, because I am. Waiting for the Lord always strengthens God's people. Always. Always. Waiting for the Lord strengthens the apostles. Waiting for the Lord will strengthen those who love Him. Waiting for the Lord will strengthen those who belong to Him. Waiting for God's plan, waiting for God's timing will ultimately strengthen the saints of God. How? First, in this incident, by teaching them obedience. In Acts chapter 1 verse 4, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait. That was a command. He commanded them to wait. Here in verse 12, what are they doing? You're going to find them obedient to the command of Jesus. He said, go and wait. In 4, he said, wait. In 12, they are waiting. He said, do not leave Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. There's a reason for that. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled. And he didn't tell them when. He didn't give them a clue as how long it's going to take for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. So they waited for the Holy Spirit. How many of us would have gotten restless by the third day? Fourth? Fifth? Eighth day? A week past? Now, I don't believe for a moment that it was easy for these men and women. It was not easy. Most of these apostles, in fact, all of them with the exception of Judas, they all came from the Galilee region, which is north of Israel. Jerusalem is in the south. So they're all away from home. They're away from their familiar surroundings. They're away from their loved ones. They're away from their families. And they've been away for a while. Some of you might remember that after the resurrection, Jesus did not show up for a few days. They already saw the risen Christ more than once. But he did not show up for a couple of days. And you know what happened? Peter got restless. In chapter 21, verse 3 of the Gospel of John, he said, I'm going fishing. <laughs> the waiting is killing me. I'm going fishing. And the others followed him. And Jesus appears to them on the shore of Galilee as a form of rebuke. And here the apostles could have said, look, Jesus has now gone to heaven and uh, we need to get on with life. We need to leave Jerusalem and get back north to the Galilee region. We need to go home to Nazareth and all the other villages from where we came. We need to get on with business. We need to get on with life. Uh, we can't just sit around and do nothing. Please listen to what I'm going to tell you. 
The one thing you are not supposed to do while you're waiting for the Lord is nothing. Did you hear that? The one thing you are not supposed to do while you're waiting for the Lord is nothing. There is nowhere in the Scripture that I find in the Old or the New Testament that God called anyone who was sitting there idle. They were doing whatever they were doing, and God came, spoke to them, and called them to do, to serve, and do a ministry for God. And the, the apostles were thinking in terms of ministry, and really are becoming really spiritual. They could have said, man, there are people to be won. There are ministries to be done. There are villages and towns that need to be evangelized. Let's get on with it. I want to tell you something. I hope you never forget. The most important obedience, the most important obedience in your life is the obedience that you practice. When you have no earthly idea or earthly reason as to why you are called to do what you are called to do, I want to repeat this. The most important obedience in your life is the obedience that you practice when you have no earthly reason as to why you are called to do what you are called to do. Listen to me carefully. You are not learning obedience if you have all the logical explanations given to you ahead of time. If you know all of the what, where, who, when, that's not obedience. You have not obeyed yet. You have not learned obedience yet. If you know all the circumstances and all the facts surrounding the situation. But when you cannot see any rhyme or reason why you should do what you are being called to do, then you're practicing simple obedience. Some of you may be going through a situation like this right now. Some of you are going through a tough time, testing, waiting, and you have no understanding of why. And you're being asked to obey by the Lord. You've been asked to submit to the will of God, and you cannot see. All you can see is utter darkness. You have no light of reason. You have no light of logic. You have no light of action. Let me tell you, on the authority of the Word of God, that God is teaching you simple obedience. Simple obedience. The disciples were being strengthened by waiting how? They were learning obedience. But also in waiting, they were not only learning obedience, they were learning, 120 of them, how to fellowship together. And here you thought that family reunion was hard. <laughs> and this was not just for a few hours of the day, and then you got to your hotel rooms or your houses. <laughs> this was not even for the whole day. And then go to your rooms or go to your homes. Now that was day and night in one room, 120 of them. Please listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. I know that there are people who can get on our nerves. I know that. I know that some people can drive us nuts. I understand that some people who just irritate us. I know there are people who are just pure pain. I know that. But listen to me. You cannot live the Christian life in isolation. If we are to grow in Christ, we need people. 
If we are to develop the character of Christ, we need people. If we are to exhibit the marks of Christ, we need people. In waiting, they were learning obedience, but in waiting, they were learning fellowshipping together, but also they were learning how to pray together. Look at verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. It says, in unity, they were constantly praying. What do you think they were praying about? Well, possibly they were confessing their sin. They exhibited cowardice, and they all ran away and left the Lord. And they're probably asking, they'll be confessing. They're probably giving thanks for the Lord's forgiveness of their sins giving thanks for the Lord's patience with them throughout these three years of training them, and it seemed to, not any more than we are, able to get the lessons of life. They probably were preparing their hearts for anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They probably were reading the Old Testament, as we saw graphically illustrated. They were searching the Scripture together. They're reading all about the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they said, ah, that's what Isaiah meant. That's what Ezekiel meant. That's what Jeremiah meant. They were reading the Scripture together and praising God through the Word together. Probably they were studying the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 to 32, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Waiting for the Lord strengthens the apostles, but secondly, waiting for the Lord separate the apostate. Verses 16 to 20. Let me tell you what an apostate is. An apostate is a person who knew the gospel and even accepted it intellectually and believed it in their head, but they, after that, they've turned their back on the gospel, and went their own way. That's an apostate, a person who turns. We have many an apostate pulpit all over this country. Apostasy abounds. Those who preach the denial of the virgin birth, those who preach the denial of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who preach the denial of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who preach the denial that Jesus is the only way to heaven, those who preach the denial of the fact that He is coming back and He will judge the earth. That's apostasy. And apostasy abounds in churches today. You see, that's what Judas Iscariot is all about. Judas Iscariot was an apostate. You see, he followed Jesus. He went to church. But he had his own agenda of what he wanted to get out of Jesus. He followed Jesus because it was profitable for him. It was beneficial for him to follow Jesus. He followed Jesus because he wanted to use Jesus. He followed Jesus only to try to manipulate him, to get out of him what he wanted out of him. There are people in churches all across the United States. That's why I never believe these statistics of how many millions of people go to church on Sundays. They don't know Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you think, I'm happy about that, you don't know me. I weep over this. It's sad. Apostasy in the church of Jesus Christ. But there was an apostasy among the apostles. So I take heart. You see, when Jesus 
failed to deliver what Judas wanted, namely a revolution against the Roman occupiers, he turned on him and he delivered him to the rulers. Judas represents those who throw away the most incredible opportunity they'll ever have in their lives, eternal life. Judas represents all those who are churchgoers. Oh, yes, they go to church. They hear the gospel message. They accepted it intellectually. They assent to it intellectually, but they never commit their lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Judas represents those churchgoers who have been privileged to hear the Word of God, but it never takes hold of them. And they live their lives crookedly. See, Judas represents those who follow Jesus only for what they can get out of him. And when Jesus doesn't deliver, they betray him. In chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18 of the book of Acts, Peter obviously is giving us some detailed account of how Judas committed suicide. Detailed information that we don't have anywhere else, right here in these three verses. Obviously, he was trying to hang himself from a tree that's on a cliff, and his weight must have pulled that branch, and his body smashed all the way down in the valley on the rocks, and his body was cut to pieces. By the way, some of you might not know this. Do you know when Judas, who received 30 pieces of silver to deliver Jesus to the rulers, surprised of a slave. When his conscience was burning within him, he took the 30 pieces of silver and returned them back to the rulers. Do you know what these hypocrites said? They said, this is blood money. We can't take it back. (laughs) We're going to give it to charity. And with that money, they got a cemetery in which they buried the strangers among them. Please let this be a warning to all of us. Listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. Judas' sin of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ is no greater sin than Peter's sin of denying the Lord Jesus Christ. From heaven's eyes, from God's eyes, sin is a sin. There is no one greater than the other. You say, how then on God's earth does one go on to become the great apostle of God and the other one commits suicide, his body not only smashed in the valley, but he's eternally damned in hell? How come? Listen carefully. The difference is this. One truly recognized his sin, wept over his sin, repented of his sin, and asked for God's forgiveness of his sin, and the other allowed the accusing conscience, his accusing conscience, to be mingled together with his pride. And he refused to repent. And thus, he's now spending eternity in the abyss. There are only two ways to deal with sin. There is the right way, there's the wrong way. Hiding it, Ignoring it, denying it, is the wrong way, and you'll end up in torment. Confessing it, 
repenting of it, asking Jesus to forgive it, will send you to eternity in heaven with Him. It is that simple. The choice is yours. Peter chose repentance. He chose brokenness. He chose humility. But Judas allowed arrogance and pride to take hold of his heart and consequently was damned. In fact, verse 20 tells us that it was a choice. Look at verse 20 of Acts chapter 1. I can show you many other verses, but I'm going to tell you right now. Listen carefully. Those who will end up in hell, they will be there because they have chosen to go there. That is a fact, and that's the heart of the gospel. Waiting for God strengthens the apostles. Waiting for God separate the apostate. Waiting for God solidifies the anointed, the set aside. Because the apostle waited on the Lord, they have learned obedience. They have learned fellowshipping together. They have learned how to pray together. But they also learned how to discern the will of God together. You know, in my years in ministry, I had many people who have come to me, would say, um, I feel the call of God upon me for a full-time ministry. Do you know what my reaction is? Discourage them. (laughs) Discourage them. You say, why do you do that? Very simply. Because God is always going to get his man or his woman. (laughs) So I'm not worried about that. I've experienced that firsthand. (laughs) I know how God works. When God has his hand on you, I mean, you run all you want. It ain't going to make, help you one bit. <laughs> so I know that. I'm not worried about that. But most often, I meet those who see full-time ministry as an escape from the other things that God had called them to do. They saw that as a, as a way out. I'm amazed at times when someone comes to see me and says, I feel called of God to go across the ocean to witness for Jesus Christ. My simple question is this, have you ever gone across the street to witness for Jesus Christ? Don't tell me you've got a vision to witness people across the land until you had a vision to witness to people across the street. And here the apostles are very careful in selecting a replacement for Judas. They have put a set of criteria. They have put a set of qualifications. They believe the Lord has given them. And even then, they wanted God to be the final one to call somebody to replace Judas. And they waited upon the Lord, and the Lord showed them. I'm getting close to the end, but I want you to listen to what I'm going to tell you. You've heard me. you heard many of us, and many of you pray for revival. We often pray for a revival, and we're absolutely right to pray for a revival, genuine Holy Spirit revival, when God's Spirit is pouring upon people, and we can see it with our own eyes. But I have often wondered, and I continue to wonder every single day when I pray personally, publicly, or privately, I always wonder and ask myself the question, are we really prepared for a revival? 
<laughs> it's one thing to pray for a revival, but am I really prepared for it? Are we as a body prepared for a revival? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we really prepared for it? You say, what do you mean by prepared for it? As I read church history, I learn that when genuine Holy Spirit revival breaks out in an area or, or across the world for that matter, it is the most draining experience emotionally, physically, spiritually, the most draining thing that more than anything in the world. I read this again and again in, the, in history books. During times of revival, people come under such conviction of their sins that, that they are literally pressing into the church. The people who, when they come under conviction of their sin, they don't want to go home. When they come under conviction of their sins in times of revival, Christians, new Christians are hungering and thirsting for the Word of God. They're hungering and thirst for godly men and women to teach them, to train them. They're hungering for godly men and women to counsel them, to give them wisdom, to strengthen and help them straighten their lives. And are we really prepared for that? I'm becoming more and more convinced that if we're really going to experience a revival, we had better prepare for it. Are you willing to offer yourself to the Lord and be available to Him to use you when He sends a revival of the Holy Spirit and sends people in large numbers repenting of their sins and want to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord? Are you really ready? There may be some here who do not no, the Lord Jesus Christ, like Judas, you might have followed Him from a distance. You might ascend to His Lordship intellectually, but you really did not know Him in a personal way as Savior and Lord. Will you say, Lord Jesus, I come to You. I repent of my sins. I crown You as Lord and Savior. We're standing before a holy God who sees beyond the outward expressions, responding to his invitation, will you say to him, Lord, I am willing, I am ready, use me, send me, prepare me. Father, we open our hearts to you. We open our lives to you. We confess to you that at times I am personally ambivalent and I wonder whether I am ready. But Father, together with my brothers and sisters, we stand before you and say, we're ready. And we're ready to be made ready. Whatever it may be that you call us to do, we're ready. Use us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.